0: So as you guys are taking a seat, um, you you may not know this if you're new, but uh, Redemption Church, we really believe that the best way to understand the Bible um, is not to kind of grab um, segments or fragments of it and try to apply it to our life in some kind of weird way, but we feel like why not just teach straight through it? So we take huge chunks of scripture or whole books in the Bible, and honestly, we just teach them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and roll through. We started as a church about a year and a half ago just going through the Gospel of Mark, and then we went through Joshua, um, and now we're... uh, uh, not Joshua, Judges. Um, we obviously studied it uh, really well, so went through Judges, um, and, and now we're in the book of Titus. Now, we'll take a couple breaks in there to do different stuff like Advent or, or one-off things, um, and, and one of the ones that I want to put in front of you um, that we are going to do a one-off is we have this Sunday and next Sunday, we're, we're uh, going to wrap up Titus. Well, then we're going to start Psalms three Sundays from this Sunday, meaning there's a Sunday in between that we don't have anything, and that's on that May 29th. Now, the reason that is set up the way that it is, and as the kids are going to be in here, is we are going to talk about adoption, okay? Um, And there's a couple things that I want you to know to be aware of. Redemption Church believes that it is our responsibility as a church to engage the adoption crisis in Arizona. There is a huge need. Now, that doesn't mean everyone in this room needs to adopt, though you do, okay? (laughs) Okay, no, no, but, but what we want to talk about is our, our biblical approach to adoption, why it's important. Um, we, we were part of starting an organization called AZ 127, um, recognizing that people want to get plugged in, but how to do that, and so there's going to be a lot of cool ways that we, uh, things that we put in front of you to, to help navigate some of that. But after that, over the summer, we'll be going through the book of Psalms. I said this uh, last week, but I will, um, my best, my goal is to teach at best five of those um, uh, books, uh, chapters in the book of Psalms. We're not going to go through the entire book, obviously, 10 weeks of it. Um, and then we're going to have five other teachers, the elders here, a couple outside pastors. So I'm excited for that. But now we're in Titus. Um, here's, here's what you need to know about Titus if you're new. Um, we, we kind of started this whole idea from this one statement in in Titus chapter 1 verse 1 this is, uh, or verse 4 actually, this is what it says, Paul a servant of God, this is verse 1, I lied to you, Paul a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So the book of Titus opens up with this declaration that you can know things about God only if you do things in response to that knowledge. Okay? Now this book is written by a guy named Paul to this guy named Titus who is a pastor of a church. All the other letters in your uh, Bibles, all these other epistles are written to churches, right? But but um, the T's in your New Testament, right? There's Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus. Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles. They're the only books in the New Testament that are written specifically to someone um, in regards to the, the, the letters that Paul writes for the church so what what we've said from the beginning is what the, this book affords us as a church is to go what does it look like to be introspective for a minute let 's just stop and go, how should we operate and so we 've looked at what it means for elders to operate in the church what does it mean to attack legalism in the church what does it mean to, to address older women younger women, uh, older men, younger uh, men businessmen, employees, whatever it is we wanted to talk about those things and so the book of Titus has kind of gone through that now all the while over the last four or five weeks kind of often on, I've tried to give this analogy that it's, it's going to continue to, to uh, uh, be brought in front of us, is we've kind of felt like we're on we're a bowling alley with bumpers, okay? Because it's going to talk about two things simultaneously, and it's important we understand both of these things, okay? And the bumpers are this, on one side, you are saved by God and God alone. And I know it's redundant if you've been coming for a while, but it is not the things that you do that saves you. Not the movies, not the music, not the friends, not the actions. That is not what saves you. You being in a seat right now, God does not go, oh, I'm so glad they're there. I was, they were one step away from hell, but I'll bring them back in the fold now. That's not how it works. You're saved by God's grace. The other bumper, though, that we need to continue as we bounce off of grace is there is a proper response to grace, which is good works that we do something responding to grace. And so we feel like a bowling ball going back bumper and bumper, which is very intentional. I think in the whole New Testament, I would argue, as it will in a minute, the whole Bible for a proper strike if we're gonna play out that analogy to its fullest, okay? So, so here's where I actually wanna start before we read this passage. I wanna um, give you a little context in the mind of Paul. So Paul's the one who's writing this letter and uh, he's again writing it to Titus, but Paul's a, a Jew. Now you may not know a lot about kind of Jewish culture, but um, in Paul's mind, in hearing what the gospel is, what he had to do in getting saved older in life, he had to process Jesus through the lens of everything he knew through the Old Testament. So he started to see things that were found in the Old Testament and go, oh my gosh, that points to Jesus that points to Jesus, that points to Jesus over and over and over again. Now, there's a big story in the Old Testament that you didn't have to grow up in a church to be aware of, but maybe you, you know, um, and I want to put it in front of you because I think it's a big deal, and I want to read Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, which I would argue is the most loaded verse in all of the Bible, okay? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, you don't have to go there, um, if you can if you want to, Um I'm actually going to just read verse two because verse one is just uh, saying this is what the, the Lord said to the people of Israel. This is what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now that may seem like a super abstract way to start our, our sermon this morning, but here's why this verse is important. If you did grow up in church or had a, church, uh, a Christian family, you might remember the 10 commandments, okay? Maybe you put them on a wall, you better follow them, Tales taught you, whatever it is. You, you had these 10 commandments. Well, from that statement... The Ten Commandments begin. From that moment where here it is, here's who I am, here's what I've done, then you have the Ten Commandments. But what's funny about the Ten Commandments is it's not just the first ten. From that moment, God gives Moses to all the people of Israel 613 commandments. 613 of them. And He says, here's the deal. I'm your God. You need to follow me. There are right ways to understand who I am and how you are to act so follow me. And it's not just about loving your, 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 or honoring your father and mother or not stealing or not murdering or whatever it is. There are 613 of them. Ain't nobody in this room memorized all 613 laws in Leviticus. Nobody, right? I'm hoping not. That'd be weird, uh, okay? All, all those. Now, now, here is why the, this verse is loaded, okay? Because what, what God is doing to the people of Israel as he speaks to Moses in this moment is he's going to say, I'm going to tell you how you need to act There's an action. There there are things that you need to do, imperatives that you need to do. But before I tell you how you need to act, let me remind you who I am to you. And this is what Paul would hear. This is what the Jews would hear. They would know there's this guy named Jacob who is deceptive, literally. His name means deceiver. Dude steals from his brother. Jacob doesn't want to be known as this guy anymore. He ends up wrestling with God, quite literally, having his name name changed to Israel. Now Israel, who was Jacob, starts to grow, and his family grows. And his family grows. And as his family is growing, there's this long story with this one of his sons named Joseph. But because of Joseph, they end up in Egypt. You may have heard of the place. So Egypt is is this land now that's thriving at the time. And all of Israel, who was Jacob, all of Israel's family is getting so big, they start to be known as the Israelites. That's literally where we get the term the Israelites from. The Israel's family, Israelites. And as the Israelites are growing, they're growing. Pharaoh, who's over all of Egypt, looks at the Israelites and he says, they're getting way too big. They're getting out of control. What if they try to overrule us? What if they try to overpower us? We better suppress them and put them into slavery. And that's exactly what he does. 400 years of that beast. 400 years of slavery until eventually the people of God, the Israelites, are crying out going, God, don't you care? People are literally beating our children to death as slave masters. Are you there? And so God shows up. He appears to the man named Moses. And as he appears to Moses in this burning bush, wild story, he ends up saying, I'm going to use you to save my people from Egypt. And that's exactly what he does. He says, goes to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. If you don't, some bad things are going to happen. Pharaoh pushes against, and God begins to melee the land of Egypt with plagues. Crazy stuff. Frogs, uh, grasshoppers. The water ends up turning to blood. Crazy, crazy stuff. Now, all the while, while all this is going on, eventually, as God speaks to Christian Baal, he eventually ends up saying... (laughs) What what ends up put, being put in front of him is that now I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the land, and as, as I can, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the land, if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen. And of course, Pharaoh pushes against, that that takes place, and so Pharaoh goes, go, get out. And so the people of Israel flee. Now, they're only going to the place that God has sent them. Some miraculous way, God has saved them out of slavery. Only God could have done this. But now the, the Egyptians have changed their mind and they're chasing after Israel. So they eventually appear at this, uh, you know, the, the Red Sea, Whitney Houston, where I carry seeing singing. And so the, the, the seas part, the Israelites go through, the Egyptians try to chase after them. The water encloses on the Egyptians, kills them. And Israel goes, what just happened? This is crazy. God just rescued us from slavery. There's nothing we could have done. He saved us. Like, and so this, this woman, Miriam, she starts singing. Everyone's going nuts. There's this feast. Well, from that moment on, the Jews for millennia celebrate that moment. Matter of fact, Chris Wright calls it in his book, The Mission of God's People, the Old Testament gospel. The Jews will look back to that moment where God rescued all of his people from slavery as the gospel. Do you remember when I did this? And in chapter 20 of Exodus, that's exactly what he says. When he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now let me tell you how to act. I saved you, so let me tell you how to act. I I am your God, you are my people, so let me tell you how to act. We're going to do one verse this morning, and that's exactly what we're going to do. I'm gonna do my best as I did last week to unpack grace. I'm gonna do my best to unpack practical ways that we can understand what it means to respond to grace properly. So this is what it says. This saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Paul, again, talking to Titus, and that word assist literally is confidently affirmed. So before I go on, let me be redundant, beat this drum until it's dead. So this is it, hear, hear me. I need to insist on this thing. These trustworthy statements is what we talked about last week. The idea that grace is what saves us. This saying is trustworthy. Grace saves you. This saying is, I have to insist on it. Grace saves you. God rescued the people of Egypt or people of Israel out of Egypt. God did that. God saved you. Look back on your story. Was it you mustering up your righteous swag, getting it right? Was it you leaving behind all these things? No, God intervened. God stepped in and God saved you. Let me insist on it. God saved you. God did that. With that being the the baseline, the foundation, there's a so that. And that's exactly how the next part of the verse starts so that those who have believed in God stop. Before we get to what we're supposed to do, do you hear the language? God has saved us. Let me insist on that. So that those he have saved, whatever it's going to be, something's about to change. I remember... um, about six years ago, I got my wisdom teeth pulled and um, it's a random uh, story, but I'll I'll share it with you. Um, I I got my my, my wisdom teeth pulled and I remember going in and I've never done any drugs in my life, right? Because I'm perfect. And so um, I've never done any drugs or anything like that, but I remember going in and they gave me laughing gas, okay? I don't know if you have this stuff, but I highly suggest it, okay? Um, (laughs) Okay. So I went in, and um, before we went in, Candice had her wisdom teeth prior, uh, pulled prior, and she said, I guarantee you'll laugh. We made a little wager, and I said, I bet I will not laugh. And they put the laughing gas on. The idea of not laughing was so funny to me <laughs> that, like, I lost it. And I was just cracking up, and the nurse comes in, and she's used to it. She's all timing it up, and I'm just like, what are you not getting right now, Okay. <laughs> So I'm laughing. Well, eventually they pry your mouth open, right? And they give you all this anesthetic, you know, and here comes the, the, um, the dentist and he comes in. And in my mind, for whatever reason, stuff's like truth serum. I don't know what it is. I had to get this dude saved. I was like, I know this guy's not a believer. I got to get him saved. And so, hey, I don't know if you know Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, Sean, Sean, Sean I, I need you to stop talking, okay? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, just hear me out real quick. I need you. And, and, and he's, he's like, break, I could feel him breaking my teeth, right? And like, I'm just like, I just, I, I really need you to know. He's like, Sean, listen, we're going to have to put you under if, if you don't stop talking. Okay? So I decide there's only one way I'm going to get this dude saved. And it is if for the next 45 minutes, I hum Amazing Grace. <laughs> and so for 45 minutes, uh huh ha, 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 I knew if I would just hum that for 45 minutes, he would get saved. I don't know if he got saved. I actually think he was Mormon, so it was, didn't work out. But, <laughs> but, but here, here's what happened, right? I felt so good. I'm like talking to this guy, I come out and talking to the nurse afterwards. I got like bloody gauze, like my, I'm swelling up already. My buddy John, it was the one who was taking me because it was a real early appointment. I remember walking to the car and there's another car driving. And I was just like, stop. I was like, John, this guy thinks I have power. Stop. Okay. I was like, I felt so good, okay? Now, here's what's crazy. About a couple hours later, that stuff started to wear off, y'all, okay? And it was terrible, okay? So what began to take place was... All the pain that was being masked by, and it was good, like, so I had this work done on me, right? Now, now the wisdom teeth are removed, there's this change that's going on within me, but, and it felt good, and it was like, there's this like, yes, 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 but then suddenly when that veneer wears off, that honeymoon phase is gone, I'm left with this change that I have to begin to start to alter too, right? So now I'm living with this pain. I got to start taking meds. I got to start eating different foods. I'm drinking smoothies. I'm changing out gauze. There's a life change that suddenly I had to, to work around because of that moment. And, and what grace is going to do is it's going to say, hey, so that, know that grace saves you. I need you to know that. So that those who are saved, and it's going to begin to lay out this imperative. This is what John 14, 23 says that if you follow the Lord's commands, he will make his home in you. Literally think of that imagery. To make your home in someone. God's gonna come and he's gonna begin to move around furniture. He's gonna decide where the pictures go up. He's gonna decide the layout. God begins to move things around and then you begin to adjust to what God says. Our our role in those moments are to be obedient. So in the the same way, I I wanna play that out um, because I think I wanna give some some practical examples to what this looks like. um, So that those who have believed in God in the same way, this is exactly what going back to Israel, the, the people of Israel had to do. They were saved And because they were saved, they began to follow God. And and I don't mean just follow God abstractly. Um, Hear this. We're talking one whole chapter in the book of Exodus on garments that the priest could wear, on clothes. One whole chapter telling certain people how they had to dress, how long their facial hair could be, what they could eat, when they could eat it. The people of Israel were so diligent to look at all these laws. They actually made laws on top of those laws called the Talmud. They, they, They looked and said, we need to be diligent in following this because we are God's people. So I just say, to open this whole thing up, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. That is grace. Insist on grace so that those who believe in God, so whoever has trusted, has, has felt, has, has experienced the grace of God, you need to hear what I'm about to say. And this is what it says. Not me, the, the word. So that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works those who are saved by the grace of God would devote themselves to good works. Uh, it's funny, the, the, the word good works actually appears 18 times in the New Testament, the, the, the pairing of those two words. Six of them, one third of the encounters of good works actually appears in Titus, more than any other book in the New Testament. Now, the reason that's a big deal is because that back and forth, because of grace, we respond in good works. Now, if you've been here the last four weeks, you've heard me say some of these things over and over and over again, but I want to actually give you a way that you can respond to grace properly. And it's found in this one little word, devote. So let me read it again, that we may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word devote, and I've been trying to process like the best way to explain this has this connotation of a set decision that's laid out as I go into this. Now, I, I, I was trying to think of good examples because I didn't want to, like, put certain examples, somebody, you know... Um somebody's example out there. And, and, and so I actually, you know, use that Google machine and just Googled it and said like uh, devoted man, I could have put devoted woman, just devoted man. Right. And what's crazy is I was thinking of like Neo or Batman or gladiator. Um, no, like what was, and you can, you can Google it yourself. Maybe not right now, but what was crazy is Google ended up just page after page after page. When it talked about devoted men talked about husbands, like spouses, and, and and I thought how crazy as a culture, we understand devotion has this idea of not this big victory, not this big win, not this over and over, but I make a vow and for the rest of my life, I live out what I'm going to do based on that vow. I, I am choosing, I am deciding, I am devoting my life to this cause. I have said I will work my life around my wife, around my kids. My life is no longer just my own. I have to live in that and I live in it out of love. And sometimes I, it, it's hard, but I live in it. I have devoted myself to it. The problem is, and just hear me. Give me some grace when I say this. Um, I get frustrated. I, Sean Myers, so that's not canon, right? But I tend to get frustrated. And maybe you get frustrated. When you look at like, the, the areas of our life, when we begin to think of our devotion towards Jesus Christ, it doesn't look like devotion. Like think of any other sphere of your life that we can live out how we do the same way we do with Christ. Think of any, like, well, I might go to work tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe. I know they said there's a dress code. I can loosely kind of follow it. No, I mean, yeah, I I love my wife, but I don't have to be home every night. Like, there's this sense of devotion that's kind of half-hearted that Jesus is kind of your savior, but you don't have to submit to him in all of your life. And I'm just saying, according to verse eight of chapter three in the book of Titus, a proper response to grace is devotion, is to look preset and decide I'm in, I'm in. There is no, I kind of want to do it. There's moments where you may not feel like it, but I'm in regardless. I am in, I have devoted myself to good works. Now, um, I've tried to think tangibly how this can play out. And, and I think the Bible is going to give us a, a couple ways to do this well. Um, so if you can, you can open up to uh, Ephesians. And I know that's a, a big change. Ephesians chapter 5 will also be on the screen. But, um, but Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read to you, okay? Because this is where like the rubber meets the road. What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus Christ? And this is where it becomes kind of nuanced and not as easy because the legalist in the room wants to go the same way. I want 613 laws because if I got 613 laws, I can follow those laws. Well, okay, so I don't wear this certain type of clothing. I don't grow my facial hair this long. I can do that. Unfortunately, what Jesus does is he kind of lays out this scandalous nature of grace that we're to love our neighbors, we love ourself and that we're to, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so now what does that look like? Now there are probably about eight passages in the entire New Testament that give you very hands-on ways to do this well. I want to read one of them. You can also see this in Colossians 3, in Galatians 5. You can see how some of this is going to play out. I'm going to read one passage in Ephesians 5. So in case you're sitting here going, well, what does it mean to devote myself to good works? How do I do that? Well, Paul's going to answer in some ways what that looks like, okay? So just some rubber meets the road. We'll talk about this passage as we go. Ephesians 5. Uh, ch- uh, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What another way to start with the good news. Jesus gave himself for us, so we give ourselves to God. Verse three, but sexual morality, no. All impurity, No. No, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolishness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is a covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And God, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are, uh, are lights in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So just stop real quick, okay? Um, what he just did is he gave us a list, didn't he? I mean, there are parts in scripture that go, hey, here it is, sexual morality, crudeness, foolish talk, whatever it is. And this is part of the list. Some of these listen, like Galatians 5 lay out huge things. The first Corinthians 6, long lists of things. And as they lay out these things, we as Christians go, that's what God calls right. So let me, let me just play this out. He says, sexual morality is wrong. It's not something good. Do not partake of that. That's a work of darkness. Do not partake in sexual morality. Good, I can do that. That's a good work. I will stay away from that. Okay. Now, the reason I'm giving you this is so that tangibly we as a church can begin to look at some of these lists and play it out. But, but here's where it becomes extremely complicated. The passage doesn't end there. And this is where it becomes really hard for the legalists in the room. Okay. Because this is what it says. Verse nine, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing To the Lord, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But verse nine and 10 is what I want you to hear. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How can you tangibly devote yourself to good works? Here's I hope is the answer. May I be right on this? I really hope I am, okay? You are to look at these lists like sexual morality, impurity to covet something. And if you were just to see that as a law in of itself, I think you would be missing it. Because what verses 9 and 10 is, they give us parameters to follow these things rightly. And this is where it becomes difficult as Christians to live together. Because here's the deal. I'm to look at sexual morality and say, I'm to avoid sexual morality. But man, if if you know anything about sexual morality, it plays itself out in a myriad of ways. I'm to avoid sexual morality. And then here's the the, uh, important imperative of this passage. I have to, to devote myself to good works, discern. I have to discern. So you cannot, as a Christian, give yourself a list just to follow for the sake of following. No, this is hard work. Now you've suddenly recognized to devote myself to good works is to go, man, like, I don't know, like, okay, God, is this right? Do you want me to do this? Do you not want me to do this? It requires prayer. It requires meditation. And this becomes difficult for some of us because for some of you in the room, it's okay to watch movies have tons of language in it, right? You can sit there and go, that doesn't bug me. That doesn't bother me at all. That, that, I feel like I'm, I'm not not participating in darkness, but for some of you, you're like, that's actually all bad. And, and this becomes very like, we begin to apply, but all we know is we're to a- avoid certain things and those things play out in certain ways. The best example of this is when we're told that we're to treat our body as a temple. I've gotten already an email for this in the past, so I'll just say it again. Um, treating our body as a temple doesn't mean not smoking. Now, I don't smoke. I don't think you should smoke. It's on you, whatever. But regardless, smoking itself is not a sin because we're to treat our body as a temple. What we've done is someone has discerned treating their body as a temple is to not smoke and therefore they've applied that and that's good. That's solid, but we are to treat our body. But for someone else, right, is uh, my, our buddy KJ, who's not here today. That dude feels like he has to work out three, day, three times a day, right? Okay. Like he has to be friggin' Hercules. Okay. So, so for him, so for him, to, to, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord in that moment is committing to these things. So, so what am I saying? I'm saying, look at these lists of good works in the New Testament and then know what is good, right, and true and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's really hard, isn't it? I mean, this makes it difficult. This requires tons of work. It requires us to be patients. I mean, let me just give you an example of this because I feel like I've um, given an apologetic for The Simpsons about 10 times since I've uh, been the pastor here. (laughs) So let me do it one more time, okay? Um, uh, I didn't get saved till high school. And um, when I got saved, there was a big taboo of The Simpsons. It was a big no-no, right? So you don't watch The Simpsons? Fine, I stopped watching The Simpsons. And um, what I came to find out is I really like began to really press into theology, be conservative theologically, and then socially kind of be a little more liberal, is I tried to recognize that as we had kids, I had to make decisions that, of discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, not just for myself, but for my kids. So now I'm trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord to do what is right for them. And it's not easy. If you're a parent, you know it's not easy, right? Because there are certain movies and shows, you want them to stay millions of light years away. And then there are certain things that you're like, I don't know, right? Like, like I don't... we. <laughs> So for example, we let our kids watch Simpsons, but they ain't watching Spongebob because th- their brain is rotting. Well, like you've seen it now. Let me explain back to the Simpsons. Sorry. Okay. So here's what I'm saying. So what we decided, though, you may think it's wrong to watch the Simpsons. We wanted to disciple our children culturally. We, cultural discipleship. We wanted them to be able to see things in culture that we didn't want them to avoid because eventually they're going to be around cussing. Eventually they're going to see somebody pull out a nude picture. That's going to happen. College, after college, high school, wherever. So that day is going to come. So we want to disciple them through these processes before we get there. So we use the Simpsons, though you may think it's a sin, to culturally disciple them because, I'm just trying to let you into our life for a second, we feel like as we discern what the Simpsons does is it exploits all these cultural norms that everyone is around and we just take for, so it looks at the Christian, hi, ho, Ned Flanders. And we can pause it and go, do you feel like all Christians are like that? No. But do you feel like the, the, the culture, the people around us, maybe your kids at school think you're like that? Yeah, they always think we think we're better than people because we're, we're Christians. So, so, and this goes for, for the homosexuality culture. This goes for the, the realm of politics. We felt like the Simpsons was a good avenue. Now hear me. Some of you hear that and you think I'm going to hell, Right? Okay, but the reality is, it's not that simple. What we're doing our best to discern. Now listen, there are moments where we have to go, I desperately want you to do that, buddy, but no. And I don't want you to do it because I want you to do it, but but there are things that you want to do, no. And there are things where I go, okay, I got to do this. But listen, it's not just for our kids, it's for you as well. This is hard work. To devote yourself to good works is to be in, to do this right. But I promise you, here's what I'm going to say. If you've been saved by grace... God will give you the ability to do this. Um, So about two years ago, I did my grandpa's funeral um, my grandma died probably a year and a half earlier. And I wanted something from their home because I remember kind of going back and forth with my parents and, and it staying the night sometimes at my grandparents' house. And um, they had this grapefruit tree that every single uh, spring and fall, you know, they, they, uh, you know, we'd get some grapefruits. I didn't even like grapefruit, but I ate it just because I was nice to them. And so um, here, so at the time, as Candace and I last year were moving in um, to our new house, we wanted some fruit trees. And I really wanted to take something from the house, my grandpa's house. So Jude and I ended up digging up this. Grapefruit tree, okay, and it's a full-grown 30 years, roots are everywhere. And what was crazy is we dug it up and it like halfway died. I mean we put it in the ground, two weeks later, it was like nothing, no leaves on it, right? But what happened this year, slowly but surely, we started to see green again. And then we started to see like little grapefruits growing on it. And we recognized that if there was there there's life on the tree when it's producing fruit. There's, There's life on the tree, there's life in the tree when it's producing fruit. And I'm just telling you, if you can see that as an example, the only way you're going to know is if, if I'm saved truly by grace, to respond to grace is to respond with fruit of good works, is to do this right, is, is to, to be in it, to be devoted. Now, there's more to this, and this is where we'll finish up our passage together. Um, if the first part is to insist on grace alone saves us, and the second part is to recognize that we are those people who are saved by grace are to respond to the third part, which is devoting ourselves to good works. Or there's a fourth part to this, and it's found at the very end of our verse. These things, talking about this idea, these things are excellent and profitable for people. So what I just laid out in front of you is not just some have-tos. It's not just some, when you walk out of here, you better feel the pressure to get it right. No, hear me, it's for your good. And I don't just mean for the Christian I mean, anybody in this world who chooses to be a Christian, who chooses to follow the law of liberty according to James 2, it is profitable, literally translated advantageous. It is for your good. It is excellent for you to know this. So you think, you think all the joy in the world is found with sleeping with her. You think that, don't you? And yet God all the while is telling you, no, I promise you, If you would trust me, the true joy, the real reality in which you are everything you are looking for, all that your heart is yearning for is found in marriage. You think, but you have settled, bro. You have settled. You have have bought the lie hook, line, and sinker, and you are living for something synthetic. But to follow this out rightly is where true joy is found. It is profitable for you to know this reality. Um... I'm going to read something from Tim Chester. He says this, again, I was using this um, as a commentary. I've shared that with you guys a couple times. The secret of the gospel change is being convinced that Jesus is the good life and the fountain of joy. Any alternative we might choose would be the letdown. So this is where I want to just kind of let you in, just pastoring. Um, I was asked, as we've been going for about 15 months now, 16 months, I don't know how long now, but... um, I was asked by somebody, what's the hardest part of doing this? And I know we all have different parts of our job. Um, what's the hardest part of, of pastoring? And man, I, I think the schedule can be goofy sometimes, but I don't think that's the hardest part. I, I don't think deciding on what we're gonna do with buildings and rooms, I, I honestly don't think that's the hardest part. I, I, I love doing this. I think this gives me life coming up and being able to teach with you guys and even meeting with you guys. I think those, uh, the, all those things give me life. Um, the reality is if you were to take the stress from all those things combined, I would say it's not even half of the stress of this job of watching some of you choose, make decisions, base your life on things against your own joy. It's, and a part, I, I know I keep using this, this frivolous language, but it sucks. It's awful. Like you choosing to continue to think, and I, I, the only way I can describe it is like you're crazy. Like you continue to choose this thing that clearly is not bringing you happiness. Like, What's your deal? Like, why, are, why do you? And to watch it over and over. And, 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 and so much so that it's affecting things that you would do. In the, I want this in the future. I wanted this in the future. But you've made a decision that it's stunted that now. Now you can't even have certain things. Like, it's killing you. It's like a virus. You love having the flu or something. But, but, but oh, no, it's good for me. It's good. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Over and over and over again. Man, it's hard. It's so hard. So I was trying to think of good examples, and I didn't want to put anyone out here example on blast. And as I was kind of praying through, um, this guy that I meet with every other week, we have breakfast together. I won't say his name, but Nick sent me this um, blog. And, uh, and as he sent me this this blog, it was perfect. Like I was literally praying, God, like, Give me a good example, and he sent me just this blog, and um, and, I, and I started to read it, and it nailed exactly what what I think I'm trying to communicate, or at least what these things are excellent and profitable for people is trying to communicate. Now you're gonna have to give me some grace. One on the length of it, it's kind of long. It's a blog, but it's not too too long. I cut a couple things out of it. The other thing is you may not agree with everything in here, but his story of what happens in this thing, what goes on in his heart, is I think exactly what the end of verse eight is trying a get out, okay? So this is what it says. Um it's it's uh again from this blog that was sent. Here here's what it says. I sometimes work in Chicago's number one donut shop four years running and eat far more donuts than any human should. Sometimes I close the donut shop, which includes one of my favorite parts of the of working there. Uh the location has a little window which opens to the sidewalk. And uh, there, there is constant stream of pedestrians. In the last 15 minutes or so of the, every business day, I start boxing up all the donuts in four to six packs so I can give them away. There are few things I love more than popping open that little window, leaning out and yelling, free donuts, to people as they pass by. Wait, really? They're, they're free is the most common response. I shove the box into their hand and their day is instantly made. Their face brightens and I can tell you they are bursting to tear that box open and dig in. Last week, I was closing up shop, and I slid the window open to see a man digging through the trash only a few yards from me. Without hesitation, I held out the box of Chicago's favorite donuts and said, hey, man, I've got some fresh donuts for you. He looked at me, shook his head, tossed out a limp, nah, then went back to picking through the garbage. I was blown away. Who, when offered the best donuts in the city, turns them down in favor of rummaging through a public trash can? Not a minute later, I realized I just witnessed the gospel. I saw myself in that man digging through the trash. I would be remiss not to mention C.S. Lewis's famous quote here when he says, it would seem that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. I realize that I'm constantly trying to find my own path of pleasure. I'm always trying to satisfy myself, be it with pornography, girls, money, etc. I think part of the problem is whenever I've messed up in the past with pornography, for example, I immediately begin to pile on the shame and guilt onto myself. However, I don't think Jesus is standing there wagging his finger at me. In fact, I don't think he even wants us to feel bad about screwing up again and again and again and again. I don't think he is, I don't think he is, he is uh, uh, mad or in, in any way. I think actually in all reality, he is sad for us. Instead of condemning us, I think Jesus is a few yards away, hanging out a window, offering us free donuts while we dig through the trash. He has so much more to give us. He stands there and watches us dig through the garbage, hoping to find something of worth. Maybe this year I'll get that job and my life will be set straight. Or maybe next week I'll garner that courage to go to that cute girl in the coffee shop. Then and then and then and then I'll have my whole life be set. He wants so badly for us to see him and what he is offering us. When we keep hearing him call to us to return to sticking our nose in the trash cans, we can't imagine that Jesus could possibly have something better for us than what we could scrounge up for ourselves. Jesus doesn't want you to quit looking at porn or whatever habit of choice you have. He wants us to realize that the pleasure he is offering makes everything we could ever find for ourselves look like. Trash. When we accept what, he has pleasure, what pleasures are stored up for us beyond our wildest dreams, we will no longer want to return to those old habits we have been trying so hard to kill. They will simply begin to start tasting like they always have been garbage. I thought it was helpful for many reasons, as you can see the tone, and just experientially what, what, what he's going through. But that imagery is, is perfect. To understand at the end of our verse, this is for your good. Like sure, you can can have laws to fulfill and commands to try to walk out. But if you would understand that following these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, responding to grace is for your own joy, you would stop nibbling at the table of the world and realize that's not the only taste out there. Like you've grown a palate and it's become so accustomed to tasting these things of the world that when you begin to taste God, it's like, this is weird. This doesn't taste right. And it's very hard to get into. It's very hard to create a rhythm to and it's hard to create a palate for. But I promise, as you begin to work in that direction, devoting yourself to good works, it is for your own good. It's for your own good. So I want to finish with um, something extremely tangible. Um, I think it would be amiss to, to, to walk out of here and you not feel ways that we as Redemption Peoria try to put in front of us as a church to, to play out good works. So what you might not be aware of is within our redemption communities, um, the community leaders are called to recognize people who really want hardcore discipleship. I don't know any other way to say it, but, but really want in-depth discipleship and to kind of identify these people and putting them into these smaller groups. Now, what you also may not be aware of in that is before we ever started meeting here on Sunday or every other month at, at, at that Lutheran church that was way back in the day, whenever we started doing any of that, we figured six pillars um, would be a good way to start in trying to identify discipleship. So we had to ask the question, if Jesus has made or called us to make disciples, what is a disciple? And we have found six things. There's nothing special about six. A matter of fact, I grew up charismatic. I really don't like the number six, um, okay? <laughs> but, 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 but there are six things that I wanna give you that if you continue to dive into, you can say good works can be found in these six things. These six things, okay? The first one is prayer. We believe a good disciple prays. He sets aside time to pray, he kind of prays as he goes, when, when, like when he's, when he's leaving home, he's, he's going, God, thank you for my family, protect them as I go. As a, a mom is staying at home and she's watching her kids or she's at work, God, God thank you so much for, for what you've given me. I'm so grateful for, for the opportunities you've put in front of me. We're, we're praying. We would be a people that would pray. That, that we would say is a fruit of the gospel. Those are good work. That's something good to do. The next thing is we would read. We would open up our Bible, we would memorize, we would meditate, we would dive into, we'd find our hope in, be corrected by the word of God. We would see our Bibles as the ultimate light into our path. The third thing is we are in community in such a way that we are encouraged by others and we encourage one another. Encouragement. We feel like a big part of discipleship is being encouraged by believers to, to recognize that I need to be told sometimes that, 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 listen, I know you're struggling in this moment, but Jesus continues to press us forward. There are moments where I need to see that, say that to someone else, encouragement. So we need to pray, we need to read, we need to be encouraging people and be encouraged by others. We also need to be held accountable. In, in, in that relationship, we need to look someone in the eyes and I've had the opportunity to see this about a half a dozen times in my community going, dude, you are making bad decisions, stop. We need that. Like that, that, that's faithful afflictions from a friend. Like those are good things. Accountability. The, the, the fifth thing is we believe that every disciple in responding to grace and good works is on mission. That you do not accidentally have the neighbor you have, whether you like them or not. That God has put you there according to Acts 17 to get to know them, to get to know their name, to get to know their family's name, to get to know their friend's name, their social security <laughs> name, whatever you need to find out to get to know them. And to love on them. To be in mission. And then to be in a community that is on mission in the community. Then to be a part of a corporate gathering that is on mission in this area. We believe disciples making disciples will always make a disciple who is on mission. So we pray. We read. We encourage. We hold accountable. We're on mission. And lastly, we practice. We practice the things of Jesus. The life of Jesus. And we practice the fruits of the Spirit according to Galatians 5. We recognize that Jesus sees injustice. So we engage with injustice. We see that Jesus loves life, so we see anything that pushes against life. We recognize that we need to be people of love, people of joy, people of patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. We need to be these type of people and intentionally practice those things. We pray, read, encourage, accountability, mission, and practice. Now, take that for whatever it's worth, but we feel like those six things are good. We wanna to continue to push people towards those six things. I wish I had an awesome quote to, to finish us on, um, but I don't. I'm actually gonna to read to you the last song that we're gonna sing this morning, because I think at, the, at its core, um, it, it unleashes the power of, of what I think uh, Titus three eight is communicating, and it's the song, Jesus is Better. Um, and so you might know this as we, we come to sing it, but let me just read it to you so you know the words that we're singing. There is no other, so sure and steady, my, uh, my hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting upon this rock, I will stand upon this rock. I will stand glory, glory. We have no other King, but Jesus Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praise ring. We crown him Lord of all. Your your kindly rule has shattered and broken the curse of sin's tyranny. My life is hidden neath heaven's shadows. Your crimson flood covers me. Your crimson flood covers me. And then we go into this bridge and I want you to hear this bridge because I think it's really, really good. And this is, I think, verse eight, that Jesus is better no matter what. This is what it says. In all of my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. In all of my sorrows, In all of my sorrows, I know Jesus is better, but my heart doesn't believe it, Holy Spirit. Make my heart believe it. Make my heart believe in all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe in every victory, Jesus is better. Even at the top of the mountain, Jesus is better. But at the top of the mountain, I forget that Jesus is better. Make my heart believe More than any comfort, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe more than all riches. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe our souls declaring Jesus is better. Make my heart believe our song eternal. Jesus is better. Make my hearts believe. I hope that's our prayer this morning, that we would respond to grace with works and our heart doesn't believe it, but our prayer is that God would come in, intervene and make our heart believe that it's true and it is so. Let's pray.